Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malamud. I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. Besides the obvious tragedy of millions of people dying from COVID-19, the enormous stress on their families and caregivers is one of the major mental health stories that has emerged throughout the age of corona. In 2020, we were all transfixed and horrified at the images of patients in isolation, their families talking to them through a glass window, or completely cut off from them. The question of how to visit people in the hospital during a pandemic and the toll it takes on everyone concerned is complicated and has different layers. Hospitals, understandably, want to prevent the spread of infection, and loved ones want a chance to be with and even say goodbye to the people who have meant the most to them in their lives, often a parent or grandparent. What are the rights of the patient and those who want to visit them, especially in a possible end-of-life situation? Do patients have rights, and what are they? Is a hospital a communal space? Or is the more accurate paradigm that of a landlord tolerating the tenants temporarily within their domain? And what about those crucial moments when patients require advocacy or just assistance to alert their nurses or physicians of a change that is noticeable? Hospital staff have been nothing less than heroic throughout the pandemic, but their time and availability to every patient all of the time is obviously limited. And when parents come home, they have faced a different kind of stress how to manage their work lives with the continuous but inconsistent presence of their children at home with them, forced into remote learning by the closure of schools. It ends up being a thorny kind of catch-22 for many parents, especially if one of the partners is immunocompromised. To have kids at home may have everyone climbing the walls. To send them out to the school is probably better for the children in terms of connecting with friends and teachers, but every time they come home, there is the risk of what they are bringing home with them and may transmit to the immunocompromised parent. I'm Elliot Malamud, and this is Crossing the Sea, a monthly podcast about mental health. In today's episode, I discuss these issues and more with Shari Aiken, Associate Professor and Academic Director, Graduate Diploma in Immigration and Citizenship Law in the Faculty of Law at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Shari is an expert on immigration and refugee law and has appeared before the Supreme Court of Canada in a number of precedent-setting immigration cases. Professor Aiken has spent a great deal of her career advocating for human rights and social justice and is a past president of the Canadian Council for Refugees. Sherry is also a parent of teenage twins, and her partner of many years is one of those people who is severely immunocompromised. Her household is completed by the family dog, Ginger, whom Sherry manages to get out of the house along with herself for daily walks. I began by asking Sherry about the dilemma of hospital visitation. Sherry, in the last couple of years, we've all seen the nightmare pictures during COVID of loved ones dying in the hospital alone because no one's allowed to visit them. And I'd imagine that with vaccination, such policies might be changing. Recently, as Omicron began to spread, my mother was hospitalized with a non-COVID-related illness. And yet initially, 
When my sister and I tried to visit, despite the fact that each of us had been vaccinated with a booster, we were informed that no one could visit. For me, this brought to the fore in a deeply personal way the question of what are a patient's rights and those of their loved ones in these situations. Can you walk me through this from a legal perspective and also explain what are the competing interests here? Absolutely. The first thing I want to say is that the question, what are patients' rights, is going to vary by jurisdiction. So, for example, in the United States, there's actually a federal law that addresses the question of patients' rights. There isn't a federal law of that nature here in Canada. Instead, these questions are decided within provincial jurisdiction. So I'm really going to speak to you about what the situation is like in Ontario, acknowledging that this whole question is not consistent or uniform around the world. So right here in Ontario, it's actually interesting to know that when it comes to visitors' policies, patients don't have rights. They're at the mercy of the hospital administration and the discretion of those administrators. Indeed, the son of a man who'd been hospitalized earlier on in the pandemic back in 2020 took this very question in relation to a no-visitor policy implemented in the hospital where his elderly parent was staying. And he lost. The Ontario Divisional Court affirmed that when it comes to visitors' policies, hospital administration basically has carte blanche to decide policies based on science at their discretion, and courts will not interfere. Indeed, this particular son had made an argument that his parents' charter rights were being violated. It, it was the kind of situation where the parent wasn't at the end of life, but rather needed the care of the son, right? And the court said, no, it's up to the hospital. They're not exercising a statutory decision or a statutory power of decision. They're actually just making a policy decision in relation to who can enter their premises. And that's a completely private matter. So having said that, I will tell you that there are downtown Toronto hospitals that have very progressive visitor policies. So I took a look in, in the lead up to this conversation to see, well, where, where are things at right now in Ontario? And I saw at least one example where visitors were defined under the rubric of essential care partners. And it was up to the patient to identify who those people are, not the hospital, right? And within those parameters, so-called essential care partners were advised that they did need to show vaccination status. And they were also advised that they can't come in a group, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. In other words, the hospital was signaling one or two people at a time. But we've also seen the case, exactly as you suggested, Elliot, where hospitals are telling people either no visitors or only family visitors, which, by the way, is deeply problematic. Who defines family? What's family? You know, and things have been very inconsistent across the board. And, of course, that leaves family members and, and as other essential care partners out in the cold unless they have strong advocacy skills and are prepared to go to the nth degree with the administrators in order to obtain access. So I would say it's wholly unsatisfactory, but that's where the law stands at the moment. It's interesting to me, the image you gave, almost like, you know, somebody trespassing in your backyard. If a hospital sees it as, this is our turf and we let you in at your discretion. So it's really a lot more, you're a lot more vulnerable than you seem, right? You you end up sort of inside of this institution with no ability to leave and also no ability to get somebody visiting you. And the, the image in, in, in its most draconian way is almost of a prison, right? You're, you're locked in and no one can come see you. Absolutely. 
And by the way, maybe in the 1950s, when hospitals here in Canada were actually at a staffing level, made it possible for somebody to survive in hospital without having any visitors, that's not the case today. Whether it's to ensure that the person has received their proper nutrition or that they have a bedding changed or bathroom breaks or whatever it might be, we all know that the the staffing in, in hospitals, at least here in Ontario, are not to the levels that are going to assure effective service in all of those areas. And indeed, family members play a crucial role in ensuring patient safety, let alone wellness, right? Which is a whole other set of issues. The odd thing about what you're saying, and I, I saw this firsthand, is, I mean, first of all, the people who are working in these situations are just heroic in my eyes. They're, they're, they're working incredibly hard, the nurses and the, just all the staff there. In a way, it's to their, what it seemed to me on the ground was it's to their great advantage to have family members there. There were several situations where our family members noticed something going on in my mother's care, not through any neglect, but just things change. They're fluid and you bring it to their attention in a way that's faster than if they were just sort of left to their regular rounds. So it's a bit of an odd, odd, oddity to me. But what you're raising is the issue of advocacy. And I think that's primary, right? Who is going to advocate for this patient when they can't advocate for themselves? So what happened after my initial narrative, Sherry, was even more intriguing to me was that we were initially rebuffed, but it wasn't really a strong rebuff and it didn't take very long to knock down. My sister sort of gently argued against what we've been told. And the position was quickly reversed. It was modified. It was said, well, you know, you can only visit one at a time and after a PPE, and that's fine. And we accepted all of that. And while I was happy personally with that turn of events, it really got me thinking about something that I don't think much about, to my shame, which is about the many people who do not have the advantages that my sister and I have. And to be, you know, not to put too point, fine a point on it, we both have an excellent and sophisticated command of English. We both can, when we need to, argue persuasively. We have a sense of what sorts of emotional buttons might be the right ones to push. And it got me thinking about what if you don't have these advantages? What if you're a new immigrant? What if you're a new immigrant, not per se, but you're a new immigrant with a limited or halting command of the language? And I saw those people in, in the hospital. And you also have insecurity when it comes to bucking the rules or going up against what is you feel is this massive weight of a hospital's decision-making bureaucracy. Like, what do you do? And I know that you have a lot of experience with these populaces. They're really at a disadvantage, are they not? Absolutely. And by the way, Indigenous communities here in Canada are affected as well. Imagine if you're in Inuvik, where 70% of the population doesn't speak English as a first language. And, you know, you have an elderly person who may have even forgotten how to speak English because, of course, that happens with dementia-related illnesses, and they can't get themselves a cup of tea. You know, I, I think the, the, the issue you're raising is multifaceted and one that affects significant numbers of people here in Canada. And I, I do think this policy of, you know, hospitals behaving like landlords is, is deeply problematic. What can those people do, do you think? Is there any kind of avenue for them when they're faced with that situation? Or is it just luck of the draw? Well, I suppose to some extent it's, it's luck of the draw, but, but I, but I think this is a question that probably needs to be brought to patients' rights advocacy organizations. And 
there there are such civil society groups across Canada and put on the front agenda. And I, I think just the same way the airlines have changed, you know, there's now passenger rights manifesto for people using airplanes. I mean, that grew out of the Wild West situation that air travelers found themselves in. And I think we need to see similar kind of advocacy in the Canadian context, probably by those people who are most equipped to advocate for those who are marginalized and unable to do so for themselves. Tell us what we don't see about marginalized and disenfranchised communities. I mean, you teach immigration, refugee law, you have long experience dealing with these issues. Probably COVID has only exacerbated these disadvantages for those populaces. And it's clearly created an enormous mental health crisis for those communities. So for those of us who sort of look past or don't look at all, what do you think we're not seeing or realizing about marginalized or disenfranchised communities during COVID? Well, I think maybe we're not appreciating the extent to which people are not getting health care, right? I, I think that's number one. I think there's generalized fear that's impeding people from actually getting the health care they need, whether it's regular checkups, whether it's visits to the dentist, whether it's, you know, that mammogram that should have been scheduled but's been put off. Even for people who are not marginalized, these are factors affecting their ability to access the, the care they need, compound it, you know, a hundred times for people who don't speak English or French and are, who are newcomers to Canada. And, you know, I, I think what we're seeing through this pandemic is rising incidents of illness that are not even COVID related, but that are because people aren't getting the care they need. So there's the fear factor to overcome. There's also the fact that doctors across Canada, in many circumstances, have opted to restrict office visits, only allowing visits to take place through video conference. Some people's ability with video conferencing and comfort level with video conferencing is fine, right? I mean, I work every day through Zoom, so I'm fine talking to my doctor through a computer screen. But people who are less familiar with that platform and already in find challenges to communicate are going to find those challenges compounded through video conferencing. And yet we've had doctors routinely say, I'm not seeing anybody. You know, if you've got an emergency, go to the hospital. But we all know that emergency departments aren't capable of diagnosing complex health problems, right? That that may not be emergencies, but require care nevertheless. So I'm concerned about that. I don't know why it is that, for example, my dentist has operated almost throughout the pandemic, with the exception of the first few months, and yet my primary care physician hasn't seen me in over two years. I think there's a disconnect there. I don't understand it. My dog is getting better care right now, to be perfectly honest, in terms of the adaptations that have been made for for dogs and cats than we're seeing for people. Do you think that the problem is that speaks to something larger about the way we in the West construct our societies. I'm thinking specifically about certain communities elsewhere in the world where the the idea is not that there's an institution and then there's the rest of you, but rather that there's a community, a village, clan, where there's a sense of a mutual looking out for one another, even in, in a crude form. Do you think this speaks to something intrinsically problematic just about the way we think about our society, our, our general public in the in the West? Absolutely. I think if you take a look at the way healthcare in particular is organized here in Canada, 
you know, on the one hand, it's held up as a beacon. It's it's a public system. It's supported by the state. That's wonderful. And yet at the same time, it often seems to be the lowest common denominator. It often seems not to be community-based and not to be based on this reciprocal understanding of care. And that's deeply problematic and no doubt has an impact on outcomes. Is it just the inevitable result of the machinery of large institutions, meaning that you almost can't avoid the fact that large institutions are structured in such a way that when they put forth these big blanket policies, that those edicts are, are by definition going to lack nuance and can't really respond properly to the needs of a particular person in a particular situation? Well, I don't think it's an inevitability. In addition to immigration and refugee law, I teach administrative law, which is really all about the relationship of individuals to large bureaucracies of the state and the state apparatus. And what we actually see in the best case scenario are large institutions working within statutory frameworks that vest discretion at the front lines in decision makers, but structures that decision with guidelines so that the discretion is exercised wisely and humanely. And that's what's missing in this hospital piece that we've been talking about, right? Is if the guidelines to ensure that that all policies are patient-centered, right? That's why hospitals exist, to serve patients. I actually saw that. What you're talking about, I saw with my own eyes, which is that there's a general policy that gets trickled down. It was changing day to day. And you could see in the eyes of the people receiving it, the filtration of the policy. And then I think almost their natural instincts took over. So if you were a person who was more sort of submit to authority oriented, you would kind of repeat the policy verbatim. And if you were somebody who was more autonomous, you would say, okay, I, I know what the policy is, but I'm looking at the person in front of me. Exactly. Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing that it comes down to the individual making that decision? Or is it, is that actually sometimes when I, you know, I, I live in Jerusalem, when I return to Israel and I get to the airport, I'm always thinking to myself, so what clerk am I going to meet at immigration today, you know? Because it always seems to be just, what's the personality of the person who I'm going to face? And something about that kind of makes me uneasy. So I feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. I don't trust blanket policies, but I don't trust sort of individual deciding whimsically on the ground. Exactly. Where do I navigate? How do I navigate this? Well, actually, institutions have a responsibility to navigate it right? There's no way that a written policy could possibly account for all the different scenarios that, you know, are going to exist on the ground in whatever sector we're talking about, whether it's the care a patient receives in hospital and who's allowed to visit, or whether it's the factors a border agent should consider before admitting prospective entrants. The missing piece here is the training piece. So you come out with a policy. It's not enough to just say to your employees, your workers, your staff, here's the policy. You actually have to train them in how to implement the policy. And that's where the case studies and the problem solving come in, right? That's where staff are given opportunities to apply the policy with feedback from the people who wrote the policy, or at least understand the policy, to let them know if they're actually implementing the policy consistent with both its letter and spirit, its letter and intent. We all know that language is limited, right? It's always difficult to imagine the various ways a given sentence is going to be interpreted. 
in the abstract, right? We actually need real life situations to figure out how to apply it. And it's not enough as an administration to simply render an edict and expect that to solve all problems. You render the edict and then you actually call together the staff and you talk about how it's going to be implemented and you develop cases so that the people making those frontline decisions actually have an opportunity to figure out how to apply it. And it's the same whether it's border guards or, you know, staff in a hospital deciding who comes within the definition of an essential care partner. So I think that's the missing piece here. Institutions have a responsibility to make sure the frontline decision makers are equipped. I don't think the answer is to take away all discretion. We'll always need discretion. We always need the person on the front line faced with the real situation to have the authority to respond appropriately to context. You don't want to get rid of context, but you want to make sure decision-making is wise. And frankly, I think we miss the boat when we don't appreciate that people need training and support in order to make wise decisions. I'm going to ask you to put on your parents' hat now and talk about another institution, which is that of the school system. One To me, one of the ongoing ironies of COVID from a mental health perspective is that some people are suffering from isolation. They have no one to be in contact with except online. And others are surrounded perhaps by, quote-unquote, too many people, as it were, with the kids at home a lot because schools have switched to remote learning and parents are also working from home. I want just personally to ask you, what's that been like for you? What are your feelings about kids being kept home from school? It's been horrendous, to be quite frank. And I'm one of the lucky ones because I have a secure job. I'm not, and so does my partner. We're not worried about how we're going to pay the mortgage or the rent or put food on the table. And I want to acknowledge that, right? That's huge. And, And I know that there's a significant number of people around the world whose lives have become incredibly precarious through this pandemic because they don't know how they're going to manage to put food on the table. So that's not our situation. Nevertheless, I have found this incredibly difficult. And and probably if I was going to sum it up in kind of one key message, it would be that my employer doesn't seem to appreciate that it can't be business as usual when uh, a parent who had their kids in school and absent from the from their workday for six to eight hours a day, all of a sudden have their kids at home present for that period of time, the very time when my employer is expecting me to work. And somehow the fact that there's no recognition of what that means in terms of my own work productivity, I think that's a big problem and a big source of stress for parents, right? So my job description didn't change in the context of the last two years. My productivity, the expectations around my productivity did not change. And what ended up happening is that I was up until two in the morning all the time doing my day job because during the day, I needed to be available to my children who were in remote learning who needed to have support in order to stay engaged in remote learning and needed support throughout the day. So I'm pretty resentful, to be honest. Certainly for people who work with me, I have not replicated what my my institution did or did not do in relation to my job. I have repeatedly told people, if this deadline isn't feasible, please let me know. 
If you need more time, please let me know. If you need to meet at a time that's outside of regular business hours, don't hesitate to let me know, right? I have not gone into any working relationship since we, since the pandemic started with the assumptions that large institutions and employers seem to have been making all over the place. Because I, I, I just, I, yeah, so it's been very hard. On the other hand, here in Ontario, the provincial government just announced that children are going back to school on Monday. Now, you would think, given what I just said to you, that I might be overjoyed, <laughs> but actually I'm not. Because we also know that in Ontario, we're expecting another two to three weeks at a minimum of Omicron to be running rampant through the community. And that in putting children back into school, while they're not necessarily at any greater risk of transmission in the school building, they're certainly at greater risk for those who are living with immunocompromised family members. You know, there. So it, it's not so much the health and welfare of my kids that I'm worried about in relation to the decision to go back to school. It's great for their mental health, but I'm not sure the government has our backs in relation to the consequences of that decision. And quite frankly, I I'm not sure that the policy decision made here in Ontario has been motivated by science. I think it's politics. As is everything. <laughs> As is everything. <laughs> It sounds like you're describing a catch-22 that's pretty hard to negotiate. If they stay home, your day is altered in very stressful ways. If they go to school, your life is altered in very stressful ways. How, I mean, is there a way out of this catch-22? Like, if you had a wish list, what would you wish for? Well, I would wish for employers to clearly communicate a policy of accommodations for this context. I would wish that we all understood as a society that it's not business as usual and and we need to pivot, <laughs> so to speak. There's been a lot of talk about pivoting in the context of this pandemic, but but not in a lot of actual pivoting other than just, you know, at a policy level, some pretty blunt tools. I'm happy for our children that they can go back. The the effect of remote learning has been devastating on kids. The loss of a peer group, the loss of social connection. The loss of connection with their teachers, it's been devastating. But at the same time, the anxiety level that that our kids, at least, are going to be carrying, going back into buildings where they're going to worry about transmitting the virus back home to their dad, is equally unacceptable. So I don't think there's a win here. It's it's the proverbial between a rock and a hard place. So and, you sort of uh, muck through a little bit. Well, muck through, you know, like yeah. everybody else is. Right. You've talked about the stress of, of the kids and that Catch-22 we talked about. I wonder if you can tell me, you personally, if there's any other particular stresses that you've had to deal with in COVID and the reverse as well. How has this period of time allowed you to, in fact, gain a renewed appreciation or outlook on the, on the life you live? Like, tell me what's been really hard for you and tell, you, tell me how it's sort of there was any kind of, if there was, was there any kind of emotional mental renewal? Absolutely. And I think because I'm a glass half full kind of person, I, I prefer to start with the latter question. Okay. And I, I'd like to acknowledge that one of the most amazing things about this pandemic is that it stripped away the superfluous in our lives, right? I think pre-pandemic, I would often find myself attending events and gatherings that I really didn't want to go to, but I felt like I was obliged to be there, right? Oh, I need to go to that. Either because it's expected of me in the context of my workplace, or it's expected of me socially or in the extended family. Or, and now I can just say no. 
So actually, what the pandemic has done on that level is freed up my ability to have more autonomy and agency over what my day looks like. And I tremendously appreciate that, right? I think that's been a really big teacher because, in fact, you know, here we are since March uh, 2020, and I can say I'm doing less of what I don't want to be doing. And and that's really important. It's a valuable teacher, and we shouldn't need a pandemic to be able to say no, right? We should be able to say no when making no makes sense. But speaking for myself, I think I've been too much of a pleaser as an adult, and I found myself doing things that really weren't good for me. And And the upside of the pandemic is that balance has really changed. So I'm glad about that. I think that's really good. And I think it's also meant that I've been more available to my family than I have been in the past, despite the workplace stresses. And that's been a really good thing. So that's the glass half full. I mean, it gives permission for introverts. I've told my kids about a line that I've always I've loved since I read it seven years ago from the American thinker Matthew Crawford, who talks about the right to not be addressed. And I think that's really important. I think, especially in the digital age, the feeling that you have to be responding all the time to texts and to emails and to WhatsApps and to Facebook and to Instagram, whatever it is, this it's almost like life is you're walking down the street and there's this invisible hand like pushing you in the back all the time saying, did you, did you answer that? Did you answer that? And I think that what Crawford argues is that we have a right to not be addressed, to just say no. And I think what you're outlining is that, you know, sort of the pandemic allowed us to gain agency over that, right? But I think what you're also saying is that we need to be able to incorporate this as a permanent feature of how we address life, hopefully post-pandemic. Absolutely. What do you do personally that helps you mentally and emotionally with the pandemic? Any kind of practices or exercises or just meditations? How, how do you go through? Absolutely. So, so here's what I do. I work out religiously three or four times a week. I hate it. I'm not one of these people who enjoy working out. <laughs> I hate it. However, I recognize that it's absolutely essential for my, my well-being, right? It's also, frankly, essential for my physical well-being because we're sitting for long hours at a computer screen. And I've managed to get through the last uh, couple of years with no back aches and no creaky joints. And I'm sure it's because that those gy- home gym sessions that I'm doing, even though I hate them, are keeping my body and mind functional. So that's been a religion no matter what. Even when I like least feel like it and I haven't slept well, I've been up till three working, I still get up the next day. And if it's my day to do it, I don't do it every single day, right? But if it's my day, it's my day. It happens no matter what. So that's number one. Number two, I walk the dog every day. That's kind of the answer to your question about a practice because that's daily. And in order to have a practice, it really has to be something that's routine and frequent, right? Something that's meditative that in this particular instance also involves some body movement and most importantly, offers an opportunity for reflection, right? So it's not just constant busyness. But there's an opportunity to pull away. I don't take the phone on my walks. I'm not looking at my, you know, social media on my walks or or my work email. It's just a period of time every day that's disconnected. And and I think those two things have been really critical. 
Although there are points of similarity to everyone's story, in the end, everyone's narrative of their time during COVID has unique elements. Some are more fortunate by dint of their economic and social circumstances, but for many, attempting to navigate the healthcare system when their lives were already challenged in many ways may be the tipping point between a life just managed and one that is spiraling out of control. We need to, we must look out for one another and try to help in any way we can, big or small. I'm Elia Malamud, and this has been Crossing the Sea, a monthly podcast about mental health. To find previous episodes of this series, as well as other podcasts and online offerings, just subscribe to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org, where you can find details of our amazing new course on Judaism in the School of Living Jewishly. And check us out on Facebook and Instagram. I dedicate this podcast to my mother of blessed memory, who died in the hospital on December 31st, 2021. Although in this episode we've explored the difficulties at times of negotiating hospital bureaucracy, I have nothing but praise for everyone who was involved in my mother's care at the hospital, from the person who greeted you at the front door, to her primary care physicians, and of course the nurses who tended to her with a smile and great warmth and patience to the people who manned the nursing desk on her floor. We were treated with respect and dignity. Healthcare workers are my heroes. As always, please stay safe and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.